Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Welcome back to a new series of PI World Sell It to the City. And I'm your host, Tamsin Freeman, and we're recording this on the 6th of October, 2022. And I'm delighted to be joined by a much younger group of investors, all university undergraduates, two of whom are involved with their university's investment fund or society. And they're going to pitch their best stock idea to our leading fund managers, Andy Bruff from Schroeder's, Judith McKenzie from Downing and Stephen English from Stellar Asset Management. Welcome back to the three of you. So the idea is for our investors to uncover a hidden gem that the fund managers have overlooked. So in order of presenting, I'm going to introduce our young investors. And we've got Ralph Atkinson, chairman of the Twicker Fund from Sheffield University. Welcome, Ralph. And Kai, and Kai Panvitz from St. Andrews University. Welcome, Kai and Rachel Liu from Cutty Sark Investment Society of Clare College. Welcome, Rachel. So the format, each investor has 10 minutes to present their stock, followed by eight minutes of questions by the fund managers, who will then give their views on the stock and on the pitch. And then after the last pitch, we'll come back to the fund managers to give their scores out of five for both the stock and the pitch. So let's get started and we'll go to Ralph, who'll pitch CPP, ticker CPP. Ralph, over to you. Uh, so hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Ralph and today I'll be pitching uh, a buy for the Aimlisted Equity CPP group. Um, so I'll just dive right in. Yeah, so really quickly, um, how do they make money? Um, well, they offer a range of real-time assistance products. Um, and these could be things like, um, you know, insurance for your credit cards or um, uh, emergency home services and things like that. So if you get on a flight with Jet2, um, these are the people who help you out should your flight get disrupted uh, or for your luggage to get lost. Um, and they offer a range of services. Uh, so for example, they would partner with the airline uh, and they would implement and manage the, the customer facing tools uh, that would deal with say the baggage losses or the disruption with your flight. Um, so very quickly again, as you can see from the, the past 12 months, uh, sentiment in CPP has been are really, really poor. And the company now trades at just uh, 134 pence a share at the time of making this. Um, now, I don't have time to do a full sort of breakdown of all the detailed financials. So I just thought I'd pick a few uh, metrics, which I think uh, sort of highlight and illustrate the, the underlying quality uh, within the business. So considering this is a 12 million pound market cap, uh, you get a business that has grown sales pretty much year on year uh, since 2015, and now to 144 million pounds. Um, however, earnings have been slightly spottier, but certainly with some good strides in 2021. Uh, now EBIT represents approximately one third of the total market cap. And I think what's sort of most encouraging about this slide uh, is you can see sort of since 2016, um, earnings have been really highly correlated with sales. Uh, and I think this is a testament to um, how management are trying to grow their earnings organically rather than just through, say, a one-off cost-cutting mechanism, which has very limited scope moving forward. Um, also, 
like us, you know, businesses are investors. And I think by looking at returns on capital, uh, we can really examine how effective the business is at putting their capital to work. Uh, and since 2018, CPP have been improving their returns on capital uh, year on year, now enjoying a 20% return on capital employed. Uh, and I've also included the, the lease adjusted version here to show that there are really very limited lease commitments within the business. And from a relative value perspective, um, running a quick stock screen, there are only three uh, aimless businesses that trade below cash that have a 20% return on capital employed. Um, now, while it is true that CTP has very thin uh, profit margins, I think it is encouraging to see the strides that the business has taken over the past few years. Um, so since 2018, they've made at least some incremental improvements to their margins. Uh, and this is the best improvement the business has made to their margins uh, over a four-year period since 2007. Um, and I see this as evidence of uh, management at least starting to become more strategic uh, over their costs and their efficiencies. And I think one example of this has been the, the sort of the dismantling of loss-making legacy businesses, especially in the UK. Um, I thought it would be really interesting to see uh, have, or have a look at the flows uh, in CPP. And as you can see, uh, the volumes are extremely low uh, with just a handful of orders every day and sometimes no orders. Now, while this could present a, I guess, a liquidity risk for a larger investor, um, for a retail investor like myself, you know, I can say uh, with confidence that we can be lemmings and we can certainly be quite foolish. And if you look at the size of the orders, um, a lot of the people moving in and out of the market definitely retail traders um, and as a result when looking at these aimless shares uh, that are predominantly sort of dominated by uh, retail traders you get huge uh, sort of valuation mis mishaps and I think CPP is certainly no exception here. Um, so how you value CPP well really simply you just look at the, the present value of future cash flows uh, and then you discount those cash flows back at an interest rate and here I've taken the interest rate to be the weighted average cost of capital um, and as you can see at the bottom, it's really small. Um, the, as of today, the implied value or the intrinsic value of CPP would represent a over 200% upside of the current share price. Um, so how does CPP fit into the macro? Well, naturally, you know, with any equity investment, uh, interest rates rising uh, will impact valuations. However, I think um, this will lead uh, investors in aim businesses to perhaps move away from the, the top tier equities that have you know, sometimes decades of future cash flows and earnings already priced in. Uh, and in comparison to, say, a CPP, which already has a robust backdrop of earnings and a really strong cash position. Uh, next, CTP offers exposure to emerging markets through both their, their Turkish and their Indian businesses. Now, while this is definitely like an exciting offering uh, and definitely presents further revenue growth opportunities, uh, it's really important to consider how... Uh, how this, uh, how their exposures to say the lira uh, and the rupee, um, they are definitely party to the macro risks of these nations. Um, for example, due to monetary policy mismanagement in Turkey, uh, they're now suffering from I think it's an 83% uh, inflation. And from looking through the balance sheet, um, I can see that CPP don't actually hedge their FX risk through say, um, you know, cross currency swap or a future. And um, so that's definitely something to think about. And I guess while CPP is probably more of a nano cap than a small cap. Um, certainly looking down the value chain, you see that the smaller companies tend to deliver outperformance. Uh, and I think, especially looking at a recessionary period that we're facing now, a lot of managers are looking to sort of de-risk from their portfolios. And I think CPP uh, really offers limited downside risk uh, as a business that already trades on a significant discount. Uh, and it will also flash on plenty of 
uh, retail investors streams moving forward as they've got a 300% EPS growth forecasted in. Um, so in terms of the risks, so should inflation continue, obviously the value of those future cash flows that I had in the, in the DCF uh, will be eroded and the valuation will get harmed as a result. Um, and equally, the thin margins mean that any continued cost pressures um, on those commodities would eat into the earnings uh, if they cannot keep you know, raising prices alongside inflation. And equally, as I mentioned, a failure to hedge out their FX risk in those volatile EM regions uh, will also impact their returns. But of course, this could swing both ways depending on the value of the pound. And equally, while it is encouraging to see uh, CPP pursuing a, a growth strategy, I think doing it through acquisitions can sometimes uh, be potentially symptomatic of a, a management team that doesn't know how to pursue growth organically. Um, but I think this is caveated by the new CEO, uh, a man called Simon Piper, who has lots of deal experience. He's worked on over hundred million pounds of deals in the AIM space. Uh, also, I guess this wouldn't be an issue for a retail investor, but certainly for a larger investor, uh, due to the lack of volume and flows, uh, liquidity could be an issue if you wanted to move in and out of a position. And finally, and arguably the most prominent risk of a trade like this um, is a value trap. So it can take years for securities to reach their fair value. Uh, and there's certainly no guarantee that that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, so as an investor into CPP, you could be sat in this position for years watching your, your, your relative returns and your absolute returns uh, falter as a result. And I appreciate now I've actually been quite negative. But um, so why should we buy a CPP? Well, firstly, the customer growth, I think. So CPP has over 11 million customers and has been improving sales almost year on year since 2015. And I think this is a testament to the, the strength of the underlying brands, uh, but also their ability to retain revenues from new customers. Uh, and furthermore, when looking at their Indian business, uh, their revenues are nicely diversified across their four key services. Um, and next, with such a robust balance sheet, with approximately 19.3 million pounds in cash, uh, but also no pension deficits or any dangerous leverage to be worried about, um, I think they really do have the, the sort of the scope and the mobility uh, to, to pursue a, a more capex focused strategy moving forward, uh, investing in their tech platforms. And that leads me on to the digitize, digitization. So as part of Simon Piper, the new CEO, as part of his new strategy for CPP, uh, they are looking to become a technology driven business. Uh, and this means introducing a digital cloud based IC platform, uh, which should be rolled out in Q4. And this will mean less overheads, but also less uh, regulatory challenges, uh, and therefore will hopefully bring uh, better, mar better margins and better returns on their capital. Um, so finally, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of issues with CPP, uh, and the worry is that it might be cheap for a reason, um, but the margins and the free cash flow generation, you know, they're very consistent. Uh, their cash returns on their capital invested could certainly be better. And there is no guarantee that they'll be able to maintain their, their market positions in you know, Turkey and India uh, over the long term. And also, they've even revised down their 2022 profits. Um, but all that said, I think that sort of fundamentally, CPP is mispriced. Um, for a £12 million market cap business to be nearly doubling its sales to £144 million in a six-year period, uh, alongside taking active steps to be more strategic and to pursue a more tech-focused and tech-savvy strategy uh, through the sale of legacy businesses and also CapEx with new management, while making more profits than say like an Uber or, a, or an Airbnb. 
I think CPP really represents uh, a great deep value opportunity. And moving forward with this investment, I see the catalyst for the share price being essentially some block trades from new management, uh, as I guess a sign to the markets that they do have skin in the game, um, or you know, margins hitting 5% uh, following an announcement of their, uh, you know, their new tech-focused platform. Um, and I'd be happy to take any questions. Thanks very much, Ralph. So who wants to kick off with questions? Yeah, I'll start if you want, Tamsin. <clears throat> so, uh, Ralph, yeah, it was a good pitch, actually. I mean, the thing that concerns me is that three people own 90% of the company. So you're looking at a free float of £1.2 million, which is going to make it quite hard for anyone to get involved. So you've done all this work for what is potentially a difficult share to, to actually trade in. So did you think about that before you embarked on this mission? Um, so I'm a retail investor, so it's not really something I need to worry about. You know, I've got the, uh, I'm in the fortunate position I can go on things like AJ Bell and Hargreaves Lansdowne. Um, but, you know, as an institutional investor, as I mentioned, liquidity is certainly an issue. Um, but yeah, for myself, it's, it's not one I had to think about. So, so you actually bought some yourself? No, I haven't, but I've looked at it. I've been watching it slowly uh, deplete over six months. And can you say, say a bit more about what their products are? Because as I understand it, the flight bit is, is pretty small. I thought it was more mobile phones, insurance, yeah. and you know, they don't have, with the Indian operation, they don't really have the same stickiness to their, their customers that they had in their sort of legacy book. Yeah, no, that's correct. And they've also, you know, unfortunately, over the past two years, uh, some of their retained revenues have slipped slightly. I think it's about, about 6% over the past two years. Um, but it's a combination of things. So as you mentioned, it's the, the airlines, but it's also home emergency services, um, uh, credit card protection, um, and equally uh, things like, you know, just managing sort of your gadgets and stuff like that, gadget insurance. Uh, but it's important to also recognize that, yes, they implement insurance products and services, but fundamentally it's not a financial institution. Um, so they're not subject to the same, I guess, uh, regulatory challenges that say in a beaver would be. Judith, Stephen. Um, yeah, I've got two, two areas of question. Um, one is on um, their consolidated accounting uh, because uh, they own 51% of the Indian business. Uh, I'd just be quite keen to understand what numbers you've used in your, uh, in your presentation. Is it uh, the profit attributable to shareholders or is it the, they're quite good at presenting um, EBITDA numbers that are um, the consolidated number and there's quite a big difference. Yeah, I mean, so this is your question, which profit numbers did I take? Yeah. Yeah, so I took the, the EBIT, not the EBITDA numbers, um, and I downloaded those from a share platform. And, but is that, because they're consolidated accounts, is that the consolidated number or is it the, the number that, because with uh, subsidiary accounting like this, when it's consolidated, they consolidate it, but then it's only at the bottom that they, they show what is attributable to the, uh, to the UK shareholders, if you like. Okay, I mean, yeah, that's really interesting. I haven't actually, I couldn't give you an answer, I'd have to go and check. It's quite, it's quite a big difference. The other thing that they did that was quite exciting, I suppose, uh, was they, they had a one-off provision um, uh, gain that was about one and a half million pounds, I think, that they put back into this year. So again, that's flattered the numbers. I don't know if that's something that you'd identified or not. No, I hadn't, I hadn't seen that in the numbers. Just little things to look out for. I only know because I've been stung many times. 
Um, and the other one is management. So it's been a massive revolving door, hasn't it, in the last 12 months? I think chief exec's gone, FD's gone, big payouts, about a million quid in payouts. Uh, I think the non-execs have gone as well. Um, there was a yeah. HR woman disappeared too. Any any view on the, the management aspect of the, that change and any risk associated with it? Yeah, I mean, I think this is also one of the sort of the key issues of CPT, and it has been for a while. Um, I think in 2016, uh, there was sternly some native press with CPP. They were subject to some uh, negligence in terms of the actual products they were selling. Um, but, you know, they took active steps immediately to sort of get rid of those, what we'd call a few bad apples and implement a brand new management team. And I think uh, it's actually quite encouraging to see a lot of turnover because um, you know, CPP has a 30-year backdrop of, of brands and you know, without seeing the sort of the robust and uh, optimistic strategy um, that the management are implementing, they will just you know, get rid of someone who is actually going to do the job and get them back to the, the market position that they once had. But there is probably a risk associated with that execution. 100%, yeah. And I guess um, also, you know, part of the valuation uh, that is certainly a factor of why it's so cheap. But from a fundamental perspective, you know, I mean, if you're looking at what you're paying for and what you're getting in return, you really, it's, it is really a tremendous value. Stephen. Um, thanks, Ralph. I enjoyed that. I bought some last year at £5 and sold some at £4.10. So don't listen to me now. What comes thereafter? Clearly useless. Uh, I did like the CEO's line uh, recently in the results. He found a business with no adequate plan to address the decline in the legacy business. It had no sense of purpose and it had no strategy. The only thing missing was hand me two pencils and a pair of underpants and start wibbling. It sounds like a bit of a crisis. Um, And on that legacy business, any idea of how much of a drag to profitability it is at the moment, the UK side, and how much it would take to exit that legacy business? Um, I think on their most recent accounts, it was about a 1.4 million pound uh, detraction from their profits. Uh, in terms of the actual operational costs of leaving a legacy business, uh, I think you know it'd be really foolish me to try and to guess that. I think these really complex um, sort of uh, business moves, and you know it's it's really too early to say. Mm-hmm. And it's not only the UK as well; they also had some German operations and Chinese operations that have, have sort of been wound down. Um, but it's not just uh, legacy ones; it's sort of any part of the business which just isn't delivering the profitability. And they are looking to just focus around the parts that sort of the hubs of the business, which do have the, the scope to reach the, the margins that you know, shareholders want to see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I think to crack this one, whether it's value or not, because the EV EBITDA looks like screaming value on a sub one times level. Just go into the corner and pick that money up. On a PE basis, it's on a PE 44 times. Um, I'm just wondering what, tax rate were you using for your NOPAT figures? I mean, this is actually an, one of the sort of flaws of my DCF model. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure about how to sort of manage the tax things if you had uh, earnings, you know, in sort of multiple domiciles, multiple regions. Um, so I just took the, the sort of average corporate tax uh, rate um, from the, the regions that I was looking at. Because um, if I'd have taken the, I think it was the effective tax rate that was in the in the report, the, the whack would have come out something that was just, um, you know, it, it would have made the, the, the model look a bit uh, sort of silly and it wouldn't have been realistic. Okay, the uh, it's it's a query, 
queer company because the effective tax rate in 2020 was 135%. In mm-hmm. 2019, it was 119%, i.e. their tax is bigger than their pre-tax profit, which is really strange. Uh, they actually had a massive upgrade to earnings per share, which is obviously an after-tax figure recently. The, the broker increased their forecast by 5-0% across the next three years, and that was purely because their effective tax rate forecast has been cut to a still mighty 85% from 90%. So the earnings per share is hugely, hugely sensitive to that effective tax rate. And 85% you know, compared to 19% UK is hugely punitive. Um, so without being a tax expert, it's going to be very, very hard to know if that 85% is going to collapse to something more normalised because of this multi-jurisdiction as you say, or whether 85% is kind of the norm and the tax man's going to do a lot, lot better out of this stock for years than shareholders will. Do you have a view on that? No, I mean, again, I'm equally absolutely no uh, expert in tax, Um, but yeah, I really shouldn't say. So I think we'll have to leave it there for questions, but let's have some feedback. Andy, do you want to kick off with your feedback? No scores at the moment, although keep a record of the scores that you're going to give, but give your feedback on the stock and on the presentation. So, um, yeah, Ralph, I was very impressed with uh, your knowledge of this stock, actually. Um, It's always absolutely crucial, though, when you're pitching to fund managers or whoever, to find out who actually owns the shares. So in the report and accounts, you might have found that Schroeder's owned 10% of CPP. Um, and I'm surprised you didn't actually sort of bring that up. But uh, on the main, I was very impressed with uh, your knowledge of this company uh, and the way you portrayed it. And I thought your slides were excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Andy. Um, Judith, any feedback, both on the stock and on the pitch? First of all, on the stock, uh, I, I think, you know, in, in this case, I think the numbers really need quite a lot of scrutiny because only um, 40%, sorry, 40% of cash is not free cash. So we'd never be able to be returned to shareholders. So your EV, EBITDA um, looks cheap, but it ain't that cheap. Um, so to me, there's cash risk. There's IT risk. Always hate a big IT deployment uh, coming over the hill. Um, there's tax risk talked about as well. Um, there's definitely execution risk. Uh, I think they say that they're going to articulate their strategic plan in October at some point. So I would probably be wanting to see that before I got too excited. Um, currency risk, obviously. There's a bit of customer dependency, even though there's 12 or 22,000 odd underlying clients or customers, there's there's really quite a bit of uh, concentration risk, especially with a big contract in India. Um, and uh, there's shareholder risk. As Well, Andy's on the shareholder list. So there must be a lot of risk there. Uh, but there's also um, a Hamish Oxton that's got about 39%. Don't know who he is. Uh, I couldn't even Google him to find out. But uh, So for me, from a um, stock perspective, it's probably one that I can sit back and watch for a while. I thought your presentation was good. Um, it's not easy to describe this business. Um, so well done doing that. And I think your your overall sort of headline analysis was was good. It just probably needs a little bit more delving into uh, some of the intricacies of the, the financials here. You probably have chosen one of the most challenging businesses to or types of business uh, to, to pitch and to analyse because of the complexity of the multi-jurisdictions. But uh, well done. 
Excellent. And Stephen, your views, both on the pitch and on the stock. Echo my esteemed colleagues on the pitch. Um, fair play to you, Ralph, for taking that on. As Judith said, that, that is some beast to try and wrap your arms around. Um, I think mean, bigger mission for me was the uh, the, the tax angle. Um, uh, 85% of it going to the tax man for the foreseeable future. Um, but you touched on some really good things. I uh, really liked your, your rocky slide, albeit it was probably pre-tax you were calculating it on. Um, you addressed a lot of the issues, touched on the risks. Um, you really you laid out a good investment case, and even touching on the CEO's background and the digitalization piece that they're trying to get to. It's kind of an analog business that's trying to transition. It can get there. It'll get a digital rating maybe at some point in the future. Um, but but for me, until that strategic review is complete in October, it's uninvestable. We don't know what the shape of the business is going to look like. Don't think the exec management team have bought a single share in the last two years. So if they haven't, why on earth should we? Um, and the 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 big change program that's going on, they've said uh, it's going to take longer, it's going to cost more, and the upside is going to be less than the previously forecast anyway. So uh, a bit of an unholy trinity uh, from that side of things. Tremendous. Thank you very much. Um, Andy, you didn't give your view really on the stock. You said Schroeder's own 10%. Was that enough of a view to say... You're all in and you love it. It's been a absolute nightmare of an investment. It's, Hamish Alton, the Judith's information is the founder, floated the business, could have sold the whole thing to private equity. And then the FCA changed the rules on renewability, which destroyed the, the, the front end of the business. And it's just been a downward spiral. Myself, Gary Channon, came in and rescued the business at in old form 3p a share i don't know what that is today and um yeah so we're stuck and so uh, i know a lot of people trying to buy it the pa because they think it's cheap because but um i just think that liquidity of 1.2 million until there's uh, an event is going to not uh, encourage judith or stephen to get their checkbooks out but they know where they know where i am if they do Thank you very much indeed. So we'll now go to Kai Panvitz from St Andrews University, who's going to pitch Vector Capital, ticker VCAP. So Kai, over to you. Thank you, Tamsin. So first of all, why am I pitching this stock? Uh, the main reason is because the stock's very cheap. The PE ratio is under 10. Um, and I believe that the company is in a strong position and that its share price will increase. It's a profitable business with margins of roughly 40%. It operates in a niche market that is growing. Um, it's a very small company, but it's efficient. Who are Vector Capital? They're a commercial lending group that offers secured loans to small property developers who buy properties, refurbish them, and then resell them. Uh, loans are secured by a first charge against land or property so that if that if the loanee cannot make repayments or defaults, Vector can recuperate the funds. Loans are financed by a combination of the group's own resources and its debt facilities, which I'll go on to talk about. So yesterday the share price was 48 pence. It's a micro cap company at roughly 21 million pounds. Like I said, the P ratio is under 10. 
and there's that high profit margin. And also 80% is held by insiders, which makes me believe that many institutions do not know about this opportunity. And uh, not included on this slide is the 5% prospective dividend yield, which is underpinned by a half year earnings per share of 2.8p. Uh, some of the key performance indicators, um, the big one is the loan book size. So in December 2021, the loan book was 46.3 million. Um, but in December 2020, it was only 36.4 million. So this represents an impressive 27% uh, year on year growth. Other key performance indicators are the number of live loans. Again, it's increased from 2020 to 2021, and the average loan size also increased in that year. So the takeaway from this slide is that the business is growing. Uh, the key strengths of the group, they've got extensive sector experience. They've only been a, a public company for two years, but they've been doing this for 20. And a key differentiator is their ability to provide uh, same day decisions in principle, a few other companies have the flexibility or systems to do this sort of thing. They provide bespoke solutions on a case by case basis. Um, as we'll see later in the revenue streams, they've got more than one. Um, they've got the knowledge to undertake different sorts of challenges. They've got a custom designed cloud based platform, which I'll also touch on later. So how do deals originate? Uh, the first thing is that the brokers pre-assess deals before submitting them to Vector. That's the first stage. Then Vector runs anti-money laundering and credit checks. After this, two to three members of the credit committee uh, sit down and weigh up the risk versus the reward potential of the deal. And if they believe that it's a good project, it's then passed on to solicitors to perform their due diligence. If all of those boxes or criteria are ticked, then the deal goes ahead. And in this way, Vector never deals with the customer directly. It's always solicitor to solicitor. So loan security, the big one is they take a first legal charge on property. Um, also, the average loan to value is such that um, the loanee has a lot of skin in the game, so they don't want to default on the loan. They also um, make loan agreements with the borrowing company, and they have director's guarantees made when they lend to special purpose vehicles. So in this way, Vector spreads out the risk. So briefly on their uh, loan agreement management system, this is a cloud backup of all their data. So in COVID, they weren't very affected. They could work from home very easily. Um, it's got a very good database of borrowers, including all of their contact and loan details. They've got live payments and redemptions, and it's very good for audit purposes. They get audited nine times a year, and um, they just provide an audit uh, profile for the auditors, and that allows them to audit them quickly. So. They've got a 60 million pound lending capacity that's made up of three things um, two banking facilities, Aldermore and Shawbrook Bank facility. So uh, Aldermore 
they get a 15 million pound contribution from and 20 million from Shawbrook. Um, so a total com contribution from the banking facilities of 35 million. And last year it was only 25 million. So it's a, it's a good thing that they're increasing that. And also a 25 million pound uh, contribution from shareholder funds. And they get charged at 6.5% by the banks and lend to customers at 11 to 14%. And this spread is where they make their money. So here, the biggest uh, contribution to their income streams is the residential sector. They've also got commercial land and development. And this one is a little bit more tricky. Um, so that's why they prioritize residential. It's the least risky and makes them the most money. So the revenue went up 21% to 3 million. Yeah, that's from uh, the six months ended 30th of June to the 30th of June, 2022. Uh, their interim dividend of 1p per share, it was 0.95p per share in June 21, which reflects a strong performance. Uh, some case studies here. So at the top left is Sedgemoor Campus. It was a large office block and Vector provided a £1 million loan to enable a conversion to flats. Similar story with Kean Court and Stafford Park. And this gets me on to uh, the fact that a lot of their business is with repeat customers, which is a very good sign. Um, they operate in unregulated financing, which is different from regulated. Um, big banks aren't in this space. That's why I say it's niche. Um, they're not regulated by the FCA either. So what's the strategy for Vector? They want to target a loan book of 100 million pounds in two to three years. The CEO, Agam Jane, has been quite clear on this. And to do this, they need to maintain and build new broker relationships. So right now they've got six brokers that they deal with regularly, that they get business from, but they want 12 or 13. Um, they need to increase their debt facilities, so get more potentially from Aldermore or Shawbrook, or find another uh, commercial lender. Um, they're a small company, less than 10 employees, but they don't need to uh, take any more employees on. They're happy to stick with what they've got and train them up to deal with more complex problems. So Vector aren't without risk. They rely on a sufficient supply of prospective borrowers. The value of property in England may decrease, which would impair the security of the loan book. If, for example, a loanee defaulted, Vector would have to sell a property at a, a lower price. Uh, changes in regulatory environment may increase uh, Vector's compliance costs. So if they became uh, regulated by the FCA and also the increasing in interest rates, that's also maybe a problem. But they're a cheap proposition. They've got um, a strong management team with experience, and I believe they're a very good stock to invest in. Thank you. Tremendous. Many thanks indeed, Kai. So who wants to kick off with a question? Yeah, I mean, I hadn't heard about this little company before, I have to say, so I was quite interested to um, dust down the reporting accounts. Uh, I, I think the obvious questions at the moment are about the macro and uh, you've addressed obviously some of the interest rate um, pressures uh, that might come about. Um, and 
what would you, what would you be monitoring? I suppose going forward in that uh, rather volatile interest rate environment. I suppose there's a couple of things. There's loan to value, isn't there? Uh, and there's the um, the default rate as well. So what what would what would make you what would you be looking at if you were owning the share over the next twelve months on a, a fairly regular basis or as regular as you could do? Yes, if the interest rate kept increasing, if the base rate kept increasing, and then uh, a statement by the CEO was made that they were worried, then I would think about selling the stock or not buying. But I think right now it's at an acceptable level that I would still buy the stock. Yeah. And how, uh, one of the other things about this company, it's a, um, it, it's a bit of a minnow, really, isn't it? I think you said that yourself. And it's, uh, it's underneath the radar. And, and therefore, is it a bit of a value trap, do you think? Because the scalability is dependent on that loan book growing um, and access to capital in, in quite a challenging macro headwind. So, um, you know, do you, what do you think the real breakout catalyst might be for this business from a share price perspective? I think it's really good that they've got repeat business. So they've got a strong foundation there. Um, if... Uh, word spreads if it's mouth to mouth between brokers so that they get more brokers and uh, more clients. I think that's, that will work for them. That's a catalyst. Stephen. Yeah, I'm not, not a massive fan of listed lenders. The, the main way you increase your profits is to increase your loan book. Um, nothing worse than a fast growing lender. Anyone can lend it. It's hard getting paid back and the, the, the worst of loans are written in the best of times um, and, and vice versa. And there's that pressure to constantly try and increase the loan book. Um, that said, the best lenders on the stock market are those that are family and founder led. So you've got that, that bulwark against that is by identifying with the large shareholder inside the shareholder, a bit like SNU. Um, just on the, on the re- return on equity, um, Price to book looks at 0.8 times. Uh, when you're at a discount on price to book, it's normally because your your return on equity is below your cost of equity. Uh, do you have a view on the current return on equity and the trajectory of that return on equity, Kai? I'm sorry, Stephen, I haven't seen those figures, so I can't speak to that. Okay. Uh, it's it's 10% at the moment, and it looks like it's going to stay 10% for the next four or five years. The only way they can get through that escape velocity um, is to gear the business up more. Um, and that's what kind of puts me off that in old school, net debt to EBITDA is five and a half times, which is scary as hell for me as an equity investor. Uh, and they're only getting a 10% return on equity despite being geared up. They'll say they're not that geared because their debt to equity is one times and they're prepared to go up to three times debt to equity. Um, Whereas the listed player I own is a pawnbroker, H&T, uh, and they can generate return on equity with no gearing whatsoever of 15%. Um, so that's a long-winded preamble of, I note the paying that dividend, which seems attractive. Do you think that's the right policy while they're trying to trap capital and grow that loan book? They did do a raising recently at 47p. So why pay out a dividend on the one hand and then have to raise equity at a discount to book value on the other? I know that the uh, placing of new shares, I think that was always the plan. Like uh, they mentioned this a year before they did it, 
in 2020 that they wanted to place shares again. Um, so I, Do you think it's the right policy to be paying a dividend while they're in this kind of early growth stage? I think it makes it a, an attractive proposition to investors uh, to reel them in. Do you think it's fictitious though? Or somewhat fictitious if it's not covered by free cash flow? Potentially, yes. Thank you, Kai. Thank you. That's the right answer. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Stephen. Andy? Kai, I think the thing that uh, worried that I'll be interested in your view is that when you read the report of accounts, they have to renew the loans, the wholesale funding with uh, Shawbrook and uh, Audemore every year. And yet they're going into these big, big contracts to, you know, lending the money for people to develop 16 flats out of an office block. And if, they're, if their builders work at the same rate as my builders, then it's going to take a lot, a lot more time in the year right, to finish that and then to sell it. And how worried are you that there's a big mismatch here, potentially where they're sort of lending long and borrowing short? So do you mean like... Uh... The, build, the projects that they take will take a long time. Yeah, yeah, um, because, they, yeah because you know you've got to roll the loans every year, and you, yeah. we can see what's happening in the, in the general economy. You could then be stuck with a, a load of projects that you, you can't sell because actually, plus then the, the wholesale lenders say actually we'd like our money back now. So you can come That's on a, a good a, point. Well, oh, thank you. I, I trust uh, the management team to diversify between short-term and long-term projects and also that uh, the brokers that they deal with they're brokers that they've dealt with for a long time and that they'd recommend good projects for Vector. Okay. How concerned are you? I mean when I, when I kind of look at the uh, the mortgage rate tables then people are saying you know a mortgage is five six percent a year and yet these people are charging 12 percent does that not concern you that the underlying credit quality of uh, the people they're lending to isn't nearly as good as the likes of the people Halifax and Lloyds are lending to? Uh, that is a concern, yes. Uh, yes, I'll admit. But I, I feel like they're a good company and they'll keep doing what they're doing and go under the radar and grow slowly. Well, you, make, you mentioned under the radar a lot and it's quite interesting that the three fund managers on this panel have never heard of Vector. I thought it was some sort of mathematical sort of question when I first saw it. So how did you find it? I found it in the, in the Investors Chronicle. Oh. It was in Simon Thompson's uh, bargain shares portfolio. So I, I do echo what Stephen said in terms of, you know, a small lender is quite a good way to lose money, actually. Thanks very much, Andy. I think you've almost given your view on the share, to be honest. I mean, do you want to carry on and give your view on the share and give your view on the pitch? Okay, yeah, it's quite interesting. The pitch is you just need to bring it bring it to life a bit more. You know, you're going through, it's almost like you take the slides off their website and put in a few slides from the, the report of accounts. The key thing is, you know, when you're presenting, is to have like just a couple of points on each slide and bring it to life, show that, you know, actually you've taken the numbers from the report and accounts, put them in a slightly different format to demonstrate what you're trying to say rather than just go through it. Because, you know, finance, I accept, is a difficult subject to do that with. And hats off to you for actually 
having a go with this. Personally, um, I would rather go buy Lloyds Bank, which trades at 0.5, six times book. And I've got you know, more confidence that that black horse is going to keep running a long time than Vector uh, Capital. Thanks very much. <laughs> Judith, let's go to you and get your views on the stock and on the pitch. Yeah, the, the stock, um, I think it would be lovely as a family-owned business that was maybe private, um, where you didn't need to um, overstretch yourself and you could just take a little bit of a dividend out and it was what you did and you didn't need to grow that uh, loan book um, like the market is probably demanding. Um, so, uh, yeah, like like some of the others, I've had my fingers burnt uh, with uh, loan providers in the past. And, yeah, we, we, we stick to pawnbroking as well, Stephen. You'll be glad to hear. Um, but we're uh, we're slightly further north than you are uh, with Ramsden's. Uh, real down-to-earth, nitty-gritty uh, lenders with net cash in the balance sheet of about £13 million. So that's the kind of lending that I like exposure to. Um the pitch, yeah, I think you know you went through the you definitely went through the motions, covered all the points. I think one of the things when um, when we as fund managers are, are pitching stocks to uh, our investors, um, the, the times that you get the most engagement is when when you show that you're really passionate about it. And I think you know just adding a little bit of that to your presentation and really sort of showing that you believe in it is uh, it really wins hearts and minds. But good, well done. Another another difficult one to, to take on, to be honest. So uh, not easy. Thanks very much indeed, Judith. And Stephen? Yeah, agree with Judith on the, on the private comment. Um, there's just that inherent pressure to always put that money to work. Uh, you know, if we go through a downturn, demand for loans may not be there. And then that return on equity does, just gets smashed even more. I always remember HBOS in June 2007. It deliberately reduced its share of the new mortgage lending market to 8% from 15 to 20% because it said the pricing was bonkers. And then the stock market rewarded it with a 4% fall in share price. So the CEO reversed Ferris pretty quickly. And then within nine months, they were had to get rescued by Lloyd. So to be a forced lender is not the place you want to be. Um, I do like the fact there's only eight employees in the whole organization, um, gobsmacked by that. And they can double and apparently double again from here without having to add extra resource. But until they can get out of that 10% no man's land on a return on equity, I think the rating is always going to be quite lowly and they're always going to have to be issuing shares below book value. The pitch itself, I, I thought it was uh, really, really comprehensive. Kai, you've got a very soothing voice as well, perhaps too soothing for my uh, esteemed colleagues. Um, and you've wore a tie, which is showing us all up. So there's a level of professionalism that you've got already in your game that we lack. Um, but I, I think you covered pretty much everything. That platform is a key pit, bit for Vector as well in terms of that quick decision-making and the relationships with the brokers, which you touched on, seems to be a bit of their value add. You know, lending money is it's quite homogenous it's hard to differentiate yourself some people claim to have better algorithms than others they don't um invariably relationships do matter in this space so uh, i thought you covered a heck of a lot of ground many thanks stephen and well done kai and i'll come back to you judith stephen and andy with your scores later we'll come back now to rachel Liu, member of the cutty stock Investment Society at Clare College will pitch Norcross, ticker NXR. 
when you try to think of the kind of um, racy or small cap stock that will get the world's best investor circling, a distributor of shower trays, adhesives, and bathroom and kitchen fittings isn't very likely to spring to mind. However, the London-listed Nordcris, NXR, which does just this, stands out as a great pick. You may not have heard of the name Nordcris, but it's quite likely that your kitchen or bathroom uses one of its products, which includes Triton showers, Merlin shower enclosures and trays, Cloydex toilet seats and vanity units, and the ceramic tiles maker by Johnson Tiles. I have not been personally involved in any of the construction work, but I do work for operations in several societies at university, which basically means I usually try to buy quality products for cheaper prices. So I did a search on the internet on adhesives, as Nordcris adhesives is developed by the management team and grew organically. I have found the Nordcris products very easily accessible, laid out in very clear categories. Moreover, they have like skills brochures and a very active YouTube channel. Having watched a few videos, I found them very straightforward to understand. The well-maintained nature of the website and the fair pricing of the products are very attractive to, to me as a potential customer. And this experience ignited my interest to further explore this company. As we all know, the stocks are doing not so well lately facing the potential rate hikes and prolonged inflation risks. The key attributes of a company that will rebound and succeed is one that has, one, the ability to pass on the cost pressures and survive, two, long-term growth, high growth potential, and three, a management team that is quite alert. So I will try to cover how Nordcrest performs exceptionally on the three fronts. So a good place that we can start with to try to understand Nordcrest is the stock price. That's because the 31% fall in the share price since the start of the year rings alarm bells. At the same time, or forecast price to earnings ratio of less than six. We can already see hazard lights flashing. It's the kind of rating that says market sees big problems on the horizon. Yet, um, I don't think we need to look far for a reason for the warning signs. The combination of input cost inflation and the prospect of a recession makes a terrible mix for a company in North Chris's line of work. Also at 36%, gross margins are slim which means that after-tax profits will quickly feel the pinch if cost increases cannot be passed on to customers. The risks are increased by the fact that Nordcris carries high stock levels on its balance sheet, equivalent to about a quarter of its sales. In the event of a sharp downturn, it's all for the for write-downs. Yet, um, the numbers also offer assurances for nervous investors. First, the company has the ability to pass on the cost pressures and survive. The first concern investors may have is that the company may be building up debt if trades are stagnated, especially since Nordcrest carries high stock levels. Yet, net debt is low at 50 million pounds, which is just 0.3 times last year's EBIT. In addition to that, Nordcrest has boosted its EBIT by 50% thus reducing the spectra of future debt repayments. What's even more impressive is that free cash flow exceeded, exceeded 9.2 million pounds, being 105% of its EBIT. 
This signals further capacity by the company to manage debt and the stock levels on the balance sheet. Second, the company has long-term growth potential. Aside from the debt numbers, other financials also show significant strength. Looking beyond the current angst, the company aims to hit 600 million um, pounds of sales by 2025, and is already nearly there, while keeping return on capital employed at more than 15%. The uncertain economic conditions are more important than ever, but they aren't very easy to find. Norcris has a dividend yield of 4.38% and is forecasted to grow by 2.78% in the coming year. This is a healthy dividend that shows that the company has good cash flows, yet not too high, it reduces the investments. The, the business model also stands well. Despite the MA deals, the company has achieved organic growth within the UK. It effectively sells existing products to existing markets, the safest kind of business model, and has achieved significant growth in the past decade. More generally, the business, which focuses on sourcing and selling cap uh, products more than manufacturing, is relatively capital light. What is even better is that it also has a duplicate model in South Africa. The group, which has a long history of selling in South Africa, also plans to generate 50% of its sales from overseas by 2025. Currently, the split is 65 versus 35 between the UK and South Africa. Particularly, the company reinvests heavily into its business, retaining 65% of its profits and at a high rate of return, 15%. Unsurprisingly, this has led to impressive earnings growth. Third, the management team is alert, having plenty of experience and a very strong relationship with suppliers. In the fiscal year 2021, the company engaged public attention for the first time when the latest financial report came out. The underlying operating profit increased by 23% amidst the supply chain disruptions. This is truly rare as most businesses are suffering from nearshoring markups. In an interview with the CEO, Nick Castle, he confirmed that the company was able to pass on the cost pressures during COVID pandemic, primarily from China. This results from strong relationships with suppliers. Therefore, the company even benefited from increased availability and reduced costs of sea containers. The management team has made aggressive yet forcing efforts in acquisitions. The company acquired Merlin, the number one supplier of shower enclosures in the UK and Ireland in 2017 using 60 million pounds and is on the way to achieving the growth predictions. In May, the company acquired the war coverings company Grant Westfeld by 80 million pounds in cash. Grant Westfeld makes laminate covered wooden wall panels, a faster growing subsection of the market than the ceramic tiles they already own. Other pluses also include joint development of products. The company owns a stable combination of leading brands, which should help it give some pricing power if the market gets too gnarly. The more famous brands such as Triton, Merlin, and Johnson Hiles are household names. The growth after acquiring Grant Westfield was not achieved by cost synergies, but by revenue making. 
although the sector may be shrinking because of the stagflation, the management effectively increased the subsidiary's market share. As managed before, Grant Westfield's products are a faster growing subsection of the market than ceramic tiles. This shows again an active management that is working. Again, as the evaluation, looking at the stock prices, enterprise value to forecast sales can be a very useful valuation measure for companies with cyclical businesses that look in danger of swinging profitability. During the depths of the 2008 financial crisis, this valuation ratio plunged to 0.32% up, 0.32 times for Norcris, compared with the current rating of 0.46%. However, are times really going to get so bad in the recession that many expect to soon be upon us as they were in a really state-focused downturn of the global financial crisis? From a far more recent perspective, the valuation of the shares is in the bottom 15% of a five-year valuation range. Coupled with the low debt levels, this is certainly attention-grabbing. It is therefore my recommendation to buy Norcris. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Rachel. So Stephen, let's go straight to you. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, fascinating. Um, didn't appreciate they've got a tap called the Knurled Fusion, which apparently is assertive, striking and dramatic. So I've never met a, an assertive tap until today. So thank you for introducing me to the Knurled Fusion. Um, really good point on EV um, to sales. Um, I was getting very similar figures. Uh, the average rating has been 0.55 times uh, since 08. Um, on the acquisition, um, you mentioned it's a faster growing market. What about the the price that they paid for the acquisition? Do you have a view on that? Certainly looked expensive relative to their own rating, uh, albeit with a far higher margin profile. Um, yes, I think they did pay like a quite expensive price for this company, um, especially since like um, the economy is not doing so well. But I think based on their track record, acquiring like Triton and Merlin, um, um, I think, um, as I said, it does have like long-term growth potential. And um, in the um, longer term, it may like generate returns on that. But currently I agree that it's like quite expensive price to pay. And it was just the only, only on the debt side, you, you feel a low debt. Um, I think that was excluding the debt load they've taken on to fund this acquisition. Um, the, the latest net debt looked like £49 million, which is closer to 0.8 to 1 times EBITDA, um, which looks okay, entirely serviceable. Uh, in 08, their operating profit fell 59%. Uh, I'm inclined to agree with you. We're probably not going to go through an 08 experience, but this is a very highly operationally geared business. Uh, 0.8 times e net debt EBITDA. Would you be, do you think, again, the timing of that acquisition, maybe it's a little bit uh, unfavorable, but are you comfortable with that debt load going into a potential downturn? Um, I think it is quite a risky number, but considering that, um, I think it very much depends on the economic conditions, right? So if it is going, um, like the whole market is going down, it's a um, more risky figure, but if it doesn't get so bad and since they're already increasing their share of the market 
and the economy will rebound, I think I'll be more comfortable with the number. Judith, Andy, who wants to go next? Ladies first, Andy, you go. <laughs> okay, thank you. Yeah, honestly, I, I, I missed that Scottish humour, Judith. Um, yeah, yeah. So I was quite interested, just looking back, it's quite interesting, before 2022, this company had sort of three flat years in terms of profitability, uh, and you don't feel they just got lucky with the pent-up savings uh, as a result of COVID, that everyone suddenly decided that they need a new bathroom, they're redoing their house, and it's just a very much one-off thing, which is, as we've seen with other stocks like sofa companies, is now going to take unwind, and it's going to take quite a long time to get back into growth. Um, yes, I agree. It does definitely has some cyclical factor building into it. But I think um, in the defense of the stock, I think it has a pretty good business model and it's operating quite well. So um, although I think for investment, it may take uh, like a much longer investment horizon for sure for like the economy will bounce um, back and like everyone start purchasing again. And yeah, definitely has that factor. So um, yeah, but I went into like um, pitching the stock thinking, but like we're investing in like quite long term. So yeah, that's my thinking. And, and the other point, you know, I like the way you highlighted the stock number and tied it all in with the debt. I, I thought it was excellent. But the thing that struck me, and I, I know we've got, you know, my house, every tap seems to be leaking and dripping, but the provision is like 10% of the stock level. It just seemed a, you know, a large number to me. Um, I think it is a relatively higher value. Um, and oh, I'm oh, I'm to be very honest, I'm not very sure on that front. <laughs> okay, well, no, honestly, honestly, it's the best policy. Thanks very much, Andy. So, mm. Judith, questions? Uh, yeah, so we've covered um, tax accounting, I think, in uh, today, which is uh, pretty much as good as um, pension fund accounting. Is there anything, how, how, do you, how are you looking at the pension fund? Because there is, although there's an accounting surplus, there is an actuarial deficit and it's it's quite a big elephant in the room. I think it's about £38 million. And if you look at buyout values at the moment, well, actually very difficult to look at them at the moment with the, the, the gilts running around like they are uh, just at the moment. But um, how, how would you um, put that into your valuation? Some people put it in as debt. Um, some people look at what a buyout value might be, uh, others just ignore it and then look at what the um, long-term payments are. How, how did you think about it? Um, I think I did not take into the consideration of this because um, from my perspective, we're quite in investing like a uh, long-term. Um, um, so um, yeah, I think uh, from my perspective, it's about like um, how they're operating more. So. Yeah, yeah I, I think I, I've known this business for a while, actually, and I really like its um, its niche and its and its moat and it's got great brands. I think one of the reasons that it's traded quite cheaply over the years is because of some of the deficit issues, the pension deficit issues and, and the debt. So, I, yeah, I mean, it's something that I, I would probably look at. I, I don't know the answer to this, but they do spend about £10 million a year on development costs. And, you know, just thinking about it, I don't know how they change those development costs going through uh, more, more tougher times. When you look back in 2008 and the GFC, did you see that they, they changed that at all? Was that a lever that they had to preserve cash? Um, yeah, 
I think so, but I think for like development costs, um, um, the return on like um capital is quite high. So I think, yeah, um, it's like uh, up to like fifteen percent. So I think um from that point of view, um, it's okay. I'm not sure about the two thousand eight financial crisis thing. Yeah, I guess it's whether they, they pull back too much and then don't get that return on investment coming through or it's just that happy medium, isn't it, that they have to try and gauge yeah. what's happening in the macro, which I think will be difficult over the next 12 months or so. I'm not buying any, is it grinder taps that you talked about there, Stephen? What was it? Uh, it's the knurled fusion. Oh, knurled, right, sorry. Knurled fusion, yeah. And they've got the Linda Barker waterproof panel collection as well. I think I'm just about to go online. <laughs> That was great. Tremendous. Uh, Judith, why don't we stick with you and you can give uh, your views on the stock and on the pitch. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I inherently like the stock because it's been around for a number of years. It's a real steady eddy. Um, as I say, that the debt and the pension deficit, question mark over that, put me awful off it over uh, the last few years. But they have just gone through their triannual uh, valuation on the pension deficit. Um, I, I like how they, they've earned through the last couple of years, but I think they have been a COVID beneficiary. Uh, I would be slightly cautious about the headwinds. Um, good old Tops Tiles profit warned the other day, uh, which gives you an idea as to how the consumer's feeling about some of these uh, larger ticket um, spends like new kitchens and bathrooms. Um, the presentation um, I thought was, was good, really nicely succinct. I liked how you, at the start you addressed the three uh, main points and those were the points that I think we were all probably wanted to cover off in our questions so you, you addressed that uh, first up and I think your analysis on on the numbers was pretty good as well so yeah nicely done. Fantastic thank you very much and Stephen what was your view on the stock and the pitch? Uh, I think buying at these sorts of levels you, you, you there's a good probability you're going to make money on a three to five year basis, but the direction of travel is everything in between times. Uh, I'd be nervous. Uh, it is so operationally geared. Uh, the timing of that acquisition, was it um, was it wise? Um, don't know. I mean, the, the timing of the original float was July 07. Um, so a genius got this away. Um, then it collapsed 95%. Thereafter, the net debt though then was 45 million, um, and the EBITDA got chopped in half, and it came in at seven million. So, and they had to do a rescue rights issue about a year later, and then they've done a share consolidation since. So, this is inherently a cyclical business. That means you've always got to be still standing on the other side. I'm sure they will be, but I just would have taken a bit more comfort um, with a stronger balance sheet at this point in the cycle, albeit I think the acquisition they've made and the heritage and the brands that they've acquired is, is very, very good. Um, agree with Judith on the pension fund. They have signed off nearly £4 million a year now, top-ups for the next several years. Um, that's free cash flow that's been diverted, albeit on an IAS basis, it's gone to a surplus, but I appreciate that's a bit easier from an accounting point of view uh, than a triennial. Um, so yeah, there's, there's bull and bear points with this one. It's just the wider cycle that put me off. Um, but it's starting to look interesting. And the pitch? The pitch itself, I thought you, uh, I thought you covered pretty much everything. What, it, what I especially liked was you viewing it through the eyes of a customer. Uh, I do that exact thing myself. If they're not selling the wares well online, uh, and then all the various touch points you can access as a customer. It, it can be symptomatic that they're not very 
joined up from a sales approach and communicating that. So to think like a customer, I thought was was excellent. It's kind of uh, investment 101. Um, and to get across the strength of the brands as well, because that's a key part of this investment case, that heritage. Uh, they'll still be trading around in the next few decades, no doubt. Andy, we'll come to you and your comments on the stock and on the pitch. Well, as a former accountant, so I always like to see people going through the balance sheet and uh, pulling out various items. So hats off for that. And I thought, yeah, I enjoyed the pitch. You know, like the other two, I think we've all been scarred with uh, Norcross. And it's interesting to see that the last placing for the acquisition was at 230p. So the new shareholders have uh, only lost 20% of their money. Um, To me, it's the management team that uh, whoever's been running it has seemed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory on a regular basis. So uh, while it looks cheap, I think there's probably better better ideas in the sector. But hats off to you. To your presentation. Thank you very much indeed. So the moment we've all been waiting for to hear the scores. So we'll run through this in the same order as the presentations were given. So we'll take Ralph's pitch first, which was for CPP. And Andy, do you want to give your score for the stock out of five and then the pitch out of five? Right. So the stock, I've gone for three and a half and the pitch I've gone for four. So a total of 7.5 to help you, Max Tamsin. I wasn't even going to give the sum of those at this point, but thank you. Stephen, what do you give for Ralph on his uh, pitch for CPP and for the stock? Give me the stock first. Uh, The stock, a zero, unfortunately. Uh, it's just uninvestable until we get that strategic review out. I've got no idea where the, what the business is going to look like um, and and the cost of exiting that legacy business in particular. Um, and the dividend's been scrapped as well. And for the pitch? Uh, for the pitch, uh, three and a half. Uh, I thought you did well, Ralph. Uh, yeah, you covered a lot. And just to take that stock on, uh, you could have gone for something a lot, lot easier. Uh, you didn't make your life easy at all. Uh and in someone else's hands, it would have been baffling, but you did you did uh, bring some clarity to, to what they actually do and serve up. Tremendous. Thank you very much. And Judith, your scores for the stock and then the pitch. Uh, yeah, I kind of feel the same way as Stephen about it. I find it uh, difficult to award much for a stock that is still in so much transition. So uh, it's a one from me. It's not a zero. So that's better than, uh, than zero. Um, presentation, yeah, I think you probably found one of the most difficult stocks in the small cap space to take on. So well done in hunting that one out. Um, and so for that, you get credit. And uh, for me, you've got three and a half. So let's move on to Kai, who pitched Vector Capital. Um, Stephen, your your score for the stock and for the pitch. Okay, um, just dumbfounded one is more than zero. Thank you, Judith. Is that what took you so long? <laughs> Um, pitch um, four. Uh, oh, it was very, very comprehensive. Um, yeah, there's not too many moving parts with a lender, um, but what needs to be covered, the absolute minimums w- were all there as far as I was concerned, mostly, except for return on equity. Um, but the stock it, itself, um, I just I struggle with lenders. Like Andy said, it's easy to lose money on a small lender, so one for the stock. 
Thank you very much indeed. And Andy, your your score for the stock and your score for the pitch. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go one as well because I just feel that actually, if um, interest rates are going up, um, I think this com- this company is really going to struggle, and I just fear that uh, um, lending long and boring short could well come back to haunt them. Um, and for the pitch, I'll go for three. I think you know you covered the points, but as I said in my summary, I think you just need to bring it to life a bit more. And that's something to you know whoever you're pitching to or talking to, I think you can take that on board really. And Judith for the stock and for the pitch. Um, yeah, I mean I'm not a fan of companies like this in the market, but I, at the same time we've got to acknowledge that. Uh, you know, they, they do have decent margins and it, it feels like a family run business. So one and a half, because that's more than one, Stephen. Um, and probably uh, for the pitch four, uh, again, quite a difficult stock to take on. But I think you get credit for going to find something that none of us actually knew about in the first instance. And uh, and finding and describing a business that um, isn't actually a type of business that is not that popular in the stock market. So yeah, well done. So finally, Rachel. Andy, do you want to kick off for Rachel? Um, both your score on the stock and on the pitch. Yeah, on the stock, I think, you know, I'll go for like two and a half. It's, uh, it's not one I own. It's probably not one I'm going to rush out to buy until uh, I've got a lot more confidence in, in the management team that they're executing correctly this time. As I said, I thought the presentation was fast flowing. I thought you covered a lot of points. You've obviously done a lot of work. And so I'll give you three and a half for that and two and a half for the stock. Tremendous. Thank you very much. And Judith, we'll go to you. Of all of them, I think there's probably a stock that I might buy at the right time. Not that you want to try and time markets at the moment, but so therefore um, I would give it a two and a half. And presentation, as uh, Andy says, nice and succinct, address the main points, like the scuttlebucking that uh, went on in terms of going to look uh, for for what's actually happening with products in the market. Uh, So I would give the presentation a four. Tremendous. Thank you very much. And Stephen? Start with the um, stock. Um, two and a half. Um, I think the same as you, Judith. Um, definitely long, longer term and medium term attractions. Um, yeah, ju- just wary. Um, Valuation starting to get there. Uh, if it was another 30p lower, I'd be a lot more interested. And on the pitch, uh four give a four for that um i think really really like the the return on capital employed you mentioned that a couple of times as part of their strategic target and spot on getting the ev to sales ratio uh in there as well for a cyclical uh very very relevant uh metric Tremendous. Thank you very much. So that means that we have a winner. And I haven't told anyone what the uh, the prize for winning this is, which Addie Bruff has very kindly offered to give you a day at Schroeder's. So you can see the day in the life of a fund manager. So who has won that? In third place is Kai, who scored three and a half for the stock and 11 for the actual pitch. So well done, Kai. And in second place is Ralph, who got four and a half for the stock 
and 11 for the pitch. Well done, Ralph. And finally, in top place, Rachel, you have taken the top prize with 19, having won seven and a half for the stock and 11 and a half for the pitch, which was the highest on both, actually. So congratulations, Rachel. You will go for a day with Andy Bruffett Schroeders. So we'll set that up for you and you can see the day in the life of a fund manager and uh, you can pick his brains on how he picks the winning stocks. Although he won't be quite so pleased at Stephen's score for CPP. Huge congratulations, Rachel. That's absolutely superb. And Kai and Ralph, well done. Very good pitches. And thank you very, very much indeed, all three of you, for the work that you've put into this, because I know it's really time consuming. And it really showed that you had put a lot of care and attention into it. And even more, I should thank you for um, coming along to the first university challenge, because it's been the first time that we've had undergraduates doing this. And I have to say, I think you've all done an amazing job. So thank you very, very much indeed. And of course, thank you as always to Andy Bruff, without whom this would not have happened. Judith, thank you very much indeed. And Stephen, thank you. It's been another great sell it to the city. And to all our listeners, if you're an undergraduate fascinated by business in the stock market, please get in touch to pitch a stock. We'd love to hear from you. Just email via the contact page at piworld.co.uk. Or if you know anyone that might be interested or just is interested in investing, do send the video on to them. Many thanks for joining us and good luck in your investing during these volatile times. See you next time. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.